This is Sazim Kohler, and this is Microphones of Madness. Hey, everybody. It's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. Hey. And today we are talking the second half of American Monsters, uh, the book by Sazine Kohler. Uh, we discussed the first half last episode, and this time we're looking at the second half, which is the nonfiction side. Uh, this is a collection of essays and papers, um, much on the uh, anthropology and criticism of horror. Um, the first is an essay about uh, her own personal horrific experience that went on to uh, shape a lot. Yeah, really. This is uh, the, the event in the first essay. Well, basically, it's a story of how, after a rave, her friend got murdered in front of her. Mm, so, yeah. I mean, that, and that's in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Without, and this is what prompted her to start thinking about writing American Monsters and where she wanted to go with the story. Right, right. And it's, it's a very powerful essay, and by itself is is worth the price of the book. Right. And and really, it, it shows how um, the the fiction part of, of the book is really an attempt on Cezine's to just get past the trauma mm-hmm. of, of what happened. I mean, I, I can only imagine... Fortunately, I've never seen anybody actually die, let alone get murdered in front of me. So. Right. That's, that's an experience that a lot of people just, <laughs> unless unless it's happened to you or, or you've been in, like, you know, active combat or, or a situation like that, that type of trauma is really hard to wrap your head around. Um, you know, I've had guns in my face. Uh, I've been threatened with axes. But... You know, I've never had anyone die in front of me. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's and it, it the the essay details the the entire process from from the tragic event and the moments leading up to it to the entirety of the healing process. Right. And and how she had to go through the trial and what happened after the trial and. Going and, back to Europe and and really how it, it just it affected every aspect of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm you know and and top put on top of all this, she's trying to get a degree as well right. during all of this. I mean, so that's um that's some fortitude right there. Absolutely, absolutely, it is a testament to Cezanne's strength as, as a human being. Yeah. So, um, the the next essay, which I'll, that one was called, <clears throat> pardon me, The Night Sky Opened Up, The mm-hmm. Murder of Wendy um, Soltero. The next one is um, called The Compiler on Truth and Synchronicity. And right. this is the one where she really just like kind of talks about um, where she is at, at 
where her head is at vis-a-vis horror itself and mm-hmm. trying really she's trying to, to take a um, a postmodern literary view on horror with a, a focus on feminism and she posits that horror itself is well we all know it is a misogynist endeavor really um especially the kind of horror that she talks about in this essay right right the epitomized by by the slasher film right slasher films um she she mentions stevie king a lot Mm. um and and really yes there's there's definitely a lot of female victims in these in these movies and books but she actually talks about how the 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 essence of horror writing is really um a feminine thing um she posits that and now i'm not a psychologist psychiatrist don't know anything about it i know a little bit of pop psychology which is based on freud <laughs> and and fortunately for us she uses freud um as her as her basis so i could kind of follow it there um but she posits that the male fear of castration is at the root of all horror and um that the a, a child boy observing his mother naked for the first time can um bring about what she refers to as let me get this right is it the vagina dentata yes which is basically the fear of getting your your dick cut off by a vagina with teeth uh, I read that many years ago in a in a short story. Uh, I forget what the source of it was, but it was a story called "Teeth in the Wrong Places." Uh, it was supposed to be like a Native American legend, um, and that was my first exposure to the the idea of vagina dentata. Yeah, but I mean, I, honestly, though, I found I didn't really find the story that particular. Maybe it was the way that story was written. But I found it to be more, I, I, I hate to say humorous, but in, in, you know, it doesn't repulse me about, about this idea. You know, I, I guess I don't really have much of a fear of getting my dick cut off. Or maybe that story broke me of that fear right away. Um, you know, or or possibly maybe it's because I find find myself to be more of a Jungian with with you know thinking of archetypes rather than than everything revolving around sex. But um, yeah, I mean it's a, it's an interesting idea that the root of all horror is this vagina dentata phenomenon. Well, I, I don't know if if I would personally think of castra- fear of castration and fear of uh, vagina as the root of all horror, but I can see what she's saying about how horror, um, the, the act of horror itself is very, can be construed as feminine. If you look at uh, the myths that pop, that are 
our culture reveres, and I mean Western culture. Mm. You always have a mother of all monsters figure, whether it's a Lilith or or Gia in Greek mythology. You you have a female who is scorned somehow. Um, Grendel's mother. Grendel's mother, who who produces monsters, who. Mm. So, I I can I get it on that level. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I I can see it in in the popular films, uh, Psycho, right? Probably well, probably one of the strongest examples. Well, Friday uh, the Thirteenth. Friday the Thirteenth. That whole series is all about childhood trauma affecting uh, somebody's um, ability to function, and and the mother actually essentially creating the monster, right? That is that is Jason Voorhees. Pamela right. Voorhees, you know, was the killer in the first Friday the Thirteenth, and then Jason became the killer. And but it all started with her. Right. Um, and then you have then you have the female sexual mores that are pushed in all of these slasher flicks. Yeah, I mean, you know, we used to joke around that that slasher flicks were really a way for the moral majority to get their message across to. Like reject youth, but it is. In, in in some ways, you can you can really say that strongly that that's the case, because the final girl is always the one who remains quote unquote pure throughout the entire series. Well, yeah. If you look at the the rule book to slasher flick, mm-hmm. that though all those tropes are spelled out in there, and you know don't have sex. Right. <laughs> it's like the big one. Hmm. Um, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I guess I guess it's probably important to add that you know neither one of us are what you would call horror writers, but we approach horror from the aspect of playing um, and creating game scenarios within Call of Cthulhu. We've done slasher flick, right? Um, and and doing this in a more interactive fashion, right? And, yeah, we borrow heavily from those tropes, but I don't really think that when we do it for, say, Call of Cthulhu or something like that, that we can really rely on these tropes too heavily because there's so there are actual other people involved as the protagonist. Right. They aren't our puppets on strings that we, you know, there are darlings that we have to kill. Right. Well, and then it, it's... She takes all of this, mm-hmm. and these tropes are old. I mean, really, they go Dawn back time. a long way, and and almost like cheesy old. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing that Cezine does, and we talked about this last week, you had mentioned that that the uh, one question you have to ask yourself when reading the fiction part of this book is who is who are the real monsters. Right, and that's and and what she ends up doing, and she explains it, is she takes the uh, what you would traditionally call the monsters in in this story, and inverts it so they're actually the heroes, and the real monsters are the the men who are using the system, the rave that they're in, to their own advantage. Well, not just not just the rave itself. I mean, the rave becomes this microcosm for it, but there the other little vignettes in the 
beginning uh, the succubi sideshow you have you know the dentist who is using his position of power and authority and just the fact that he's a dentist he's supposed to be there you know to help and heal is using his ability to you know effectively murder women right he actually creates the character called um Vajanda Dentata, or just Dentata. He, he is the one who ends up being the counter to, to Freud's castration fear. No, Dentato shows up in the, uh, the first vignette. Yeah, it's I the ecstasy. He, he was the one, so now I'm going to have to go back over this, who, as a kid, saw his mother naked. Yes. Thought she had a penis inside her vagina that was ready to to bite off other people's penises. Right. And uh, it was his machinations that ended up uh, causing Lily to be born. Right. Okay. Right. Very, very complex universe. Yeah. I mean, Cezine in this book, in the particular, in the fiction side, essentially creates a roster of characters Almost as big as the main Marvel universe. Yeah, I mean, she's in a single book. She's Stan Lee, right? She is. She's only, she's like a horror Stan Lee. Only she, I don't think she used uh, the Radiation. greatness of Dicko or <laughs> no, or Wood or anybody to actually do all the work for her. Right. She did. <laughs> she did it all herself. She did the work. <laughs> um. Now, I will say this. If, if you're reading the book casually, the, the second half, the majority of the essays are, are academic in nature. Um, yeah. they, they, they're well cited, and really, if you wanted to break them down individually, we could do an – if you wanted to break them down individually, we could do an entire show on each essay. Right time um and and it is an interesting area of study mm -hmm. um well the, the thing about it is it does get a little specific to what she was studying mm -hmm. fortunately i studied anthropology in school as well and I think that when I had finally gotten out, which was in the mid-90s, was when the whole postmodern thing was hitting it really big in stride. And it, it turned me off to anthropology, to tell you the truth. And I think it really rubbed um, Cezanne the wrong way as well, as evidence in the last essay. Um, so she has an interesting rebuttal to postmodern anthropology. <laughs> um, I, by the time her, the thoughts that were powering where she's coming from were going on, was I was kind of disenchanted to the point where I just said, fuck it, and walked away. Right. Um, but... but my point is that anthropology throughout its history borrows 
heavily from literary theory. Postmodernism is a, originally a literary theory. Um, because, and I'll say this, and you could yell at me if you want, anthropology is not a real science, sorry. <laughs> it's, there's no objectivity at all in anthropology, which is why you have all these raging arguments going on. Um, and you can't really, I don't think you can have an, a true science without data that you can look at objectively. Can't do that in anthropology because you're always bringing your point of view. And they try and, and make these clever workarounds like postmodernism or whatever. But really, at the end of the day, all you're doing is bottling people and putting them in a category. And you really can't do that. But that isn't to say that postmodernism or feminism, for that matter, can't be used to look at something like horror, because horror is not science, horror is a literary genre. Right, right. And it's, it's all it's an art form and right. art, art forms are by their nature subjective. So you can't say that you know, anybody who makes the argument that Cezine's arguments in her essays are flawed or wrong, um, really you can't say that because because it is a subjective thing and when you look at horror or you look at any art form, you can you can pull anything that's meaningful out of it. Uh -huh. um, and use it as a framework to speak about things that are meaningful. Um, you know, Cezine works with feminism a lot in her horror, um, and the constant discussion that comes up um, in the Lovecraft community is Lovecraft's racism and how it manifests in his work. And yeah, you got guys that come in and go, oh, that beat that dead horse again. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but guess what? It's 20 fucking 17, and we got a neo-Nazi as an advisor to the president. So, or as you know, president. <laughs> or as acting president, effectively. Um, look out the window. Oh, no white vans there. Uh, I'm on a dead so, street. So, on, on the one hand, yeah, you know, everything is, it's all subjective. But on the other hand, these are issues that need to be talked about in, in society. Um, and we don't have a way to talk about them as someone like myself, who is effectively a, you know, a half-ass holy man. Oh, you have a full <laughs> ass. <laughs> um, so but you're right. A little, the little people, the, the people who aren't senators who aren't mm -hmm. community organizers, whatever, the way we get to academics. express... Academics. Right, or academics. The way we get to express ourselves is through art, art criticism, online arguments. Mm -hmm. And again, is it a tempest in a teapot? Of course it is. But it does serve the function of adding even a small amount to the general discussion. Right. And if, and, you don't, if you don't have works like American Monsters coming out, then you don't get other works that build on that. Mm -hmm. You got to remember, this is like a, this is a, what, 20-year-old book when it was written. Well, 15, 16-year-old book. Right. 
when it was originally written. Mm -hmm. A lot happens in, in 16 years, especially in literature. Well, the Lovecraftians would want that statement to be stricken from the record so that it all is static, kept in amber, and we have the same story repeated over and over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and how dare you think of cosmic horror as an allegory for racism and in, in that it is the ultimate form of othering. Yeah. And I was thinking, I was actually thinking about it upstairs when um, you know, I'd, I'd finished the second half and I was sitting there, I was thinking that, yeah, the, the, the slasher genre and, and that very popular horror uh, expressions, things like torture porn and and slasher films and serial, even serial killer police procedurals, uh, all all have this misogynistic element. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the old cosmic horror has that racist element and misogynist, it. and and misogynist. But that, um, but the misogynism. Misogyny, sorry, is more active mm -hmm. in there. It just with the sheer fact that there, there are little to no female characters. Right. It's not that the victims are females or, or you know, sinners or harlots or whatever, because, you know, the whole theory of cosmic horror is it doesn't matter. It's, it's misogynist in that that voice is completely absent yes. in a lot of it. Exactly. Whereas the... the Othering is omnipresent mm -hmm. in traditional cosmic horror. Well, and, and you were talking about um, the uh, mother, mothers of all evil type of characters, Shubby. Yeah. Shubnigaroth, for those yeah. of you who are. Uh, I don't say that. Familiar. I don't say that full name. Right. My son, as a side note, Logan saw that word and was like, what the hell? How did he get away with that? It's like, did, yeah. you, did you show him the infamous cat later? Those were different times. <laughs> different times. But um, as, you, as you analyze things like horror and, and the misogyny in horror and the racism in horror... And, and all of the poisons of society as they manifest through art, uh, eventually you come across a, a strain of artists who will resist that, who will subvert it. And that's kind of where we are now with a resurgence of the pulp type of horror. Mm -hmm. um, even, even uh, I believe, Cezine used uh, Wes Craven's Scream yeah, well, uh, as an example of how the misogynistic tropes get deconstructed a little bit. Yeah, well, stuff's got to evolve or it's just stale. You can't have, there's only so much Friday the 13th or, or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street that you can take before it becomes a parody of itself. And every one of those movies, franchises, became parodies of themselves. To the point where they became so—I mean, Wes Craven's new nightmare was extremely self-aware. Yeah, so you you have to have something like Scream um, just to evolve the genre, 
and and how are you going to evolve the genre? I mean, you've killed these co-eds six ways a Sunday. There's nothing new under the sun you can do to them. So you you have to go and look at the actual tropes and the mechanics of what is going on. Right. And right. who who is killing and who is being killed and what that means to us. And in discovering who is killing, who is being killed and 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 the whys and wherefores, you're able to turn that on its head and then turn around and create something that is unique. Yeah. You just popped out for a second. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. Um, unique was the last thing I heard. Oh, that was the last thing I said. Oh, okay, good. Um, <laughs> now, she mentioned Stephen King, and I've read a lot of Stephen King. I know you're not a huge fan. Yeah, I, I can't stand Stephen King. But I'm a sucker. And um, I will say that what she says about Stephen King then, back then, mm-hmm. uh, we'll call it the uh, the Shining Stephen King, because that's the example she uses, mm-hmm. is completely, utterly different from like the Misery Stephen King or the Rose Matter Stephen King, where she's, he is not perfect, but he starts to look a little bit more or a little bit less from the standpoint of, of a male dominated narrative and starts to, well, he uses female um, protagonists. Um, the, one of the big tropes he used to have in a lot of Stephen King is, is women being rescued all the time. Women being rescued. Jesus Christ. And you want to, it, if you, it, it's, it's such a great book, but one of the key points in it is, I can't, I can't even tell you. It's like, it's, I guess it's not pedophilia because they're all kids, but there you go. Use your imagination. <laughs> There's one girl in this gang. There always is. Right. And, uh, I mean, yeah. and, that's, and that's when you start getting into tropes and, and archetypal characters. Right. Um, now, I don't think a modern, if, if, it was written today by today's Stephen King. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think he'd have that. I think he's he's a little bit more aware of um, of propriety. <laughs> I don't think you get that. And I personally, I think he put that in there to shock because it is shocking. But whatever. New, newer Stephen King has definitely evolved from the older shit. You can just see it happen in, uh, in just reading the Dark Tower series, how it evolves. Uh, his attitude is of racism and sexism evolves in that series because it took him fucking 40 years to write the goddamn thing. Right. So you, you can actually get a good overview of, of how he thinks... <laughs> I just by reading through that. Yes, yeah, or, or how how his thoughts that. have changed. Yeah. Over the years. So, yeah, I mean, sadly, because of the academic nature of of the second half of the book, there's there's not much you can prepare for in a week. 
No, I mean, you could like, really, it serves to, it, it's, maybe it says something about you and me, hmm. that a lot of the things she touched on in her essays were, were stuff that we had mentioned in the first week just reading the fiction. Right, right. We're able to pull out of the, the narrative. So she, she, we can pat each other on the back all we want, but it does say that her prose is strong enough to convey these ideas without having to, to read the academic essays. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, so it doesn't detract from the book. If you're sitting there thinking, oh, my God, the second half of this book, it's all like essays and vaginas with teeth and blah, 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 don't sweat it. <laughs> right. However, if if you do have an interest in the in the academic side of both feminism and horror, yeah, it it enhances as opposed to detracts. It it doesn't it doesn't take anything away. And honestly, if you're a thoughtful reader, you can glean the main ideas from the fiction itself. But it does serve to kind of give a focus on what she wants you to focus on correct and really if if there if there's something to compare the second half of this book to it is like a director's commentary yeah on the on the first half yeah uh, you can you can read through you can you can read through the the academic stuff um you know we're not talking a whole lot about um you know the wendy's death but that right there starting off gives you a good inkling as to who Cezine is and and what is going on in her head. And then you have the academic side, which is very much director's commentary. So you have, this is the place where I am and was when I wrote this the, um, intellectual side of it. So there's the emotional side and the intellectual side that and, comes out too. And you don't get that a lot. I was going to say in fiction. You, you don't get that at all. Nobody ever publishes like their thought process to go along with the book. And then, yeah. you know, they sit there in interviews, where do you get your ideas from? Well, this is really the answer to that question. Where do you get your ideas from? Right, in in full. Because yeah. a lot of times in interviews you can say, well, where do you get your thought processes from when you write? It's like, and then you have like two minutes to answer. Nope. I'm going to, Cezine says, I'm going to dedicate the entire second half of this book to that, that question. Yep. My thought process is the entire origin of writing horror right there. And, and for that, it's, it's excellent. Like, like Steve was saying, you never get that in fiction. I think the closest we get to understanding the, the author's thought process other than interviews is like Joe Pulver's uh, discography at the ends of his books and stories where he tells you what music he was listening to. Yeah. But even that's just like, but that doesn't, that's, that's not, that's not the, you know, the psychological state no, or the emotional state when that's Joe saying how cool he is. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Joe. <laughs> It's 
Yeah, in, in some ways, in some way, Joe Pulver's discographies at the end of his stories are like uh, shelf porn for audiophiles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. But uh, Cezine does it, and and yeah, you get this, you get a complete picture. Um, it's earnest, very earnest. I, I kind of wish I had more of a an anthropological library handy. Uh, what do you need? What do I need? Well, I don't have I don't have any of her citations. Uh, so so really, you know, that's that's the one thing that struck me while reading the the academic papers was you know things were you know ideas were mentioned that me as a uh, former criminal justice major, you know, we didn't go into this type of stuff. And and upon reflection and upon exposure to to some of these ideas that, you know, maybe that should be included in that type of program as well. I'll let you read Clifford Getz and his explanation of, of the symbolism of winking in Berber society. And you can, uh, I'll just cure you of that right there. <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah, we apologize for the short episode, but once again, we we will say this emphatically: buy this book. Yes, it's very good, and it's you can honestly say it's nothing like you've ever read. It is nothing like you've ever read. Um, I unless remember read reading Crime Rave, right? Unless you've read Crime Rave, and then you're used to the style. However, yeah, definitely pick up American Monsters. Um, to also go out and pick up Crime Rave, and she just announced that she has a book of essays coming out soon called Eclectopedia, Volume 1. Essays on all the things. I'm assuming that's going to be a collection of her essays from uh, Where's Your Voice? Um, I Hello. believe it's a collection of essays from everywhere. So, um, yeah, that'll be coming out soon. I'm not sure. I don't recall seeing the release date. But, uh, yeah, definitely if you're in the mood for some some uh, some horror, feminist horror. Intellectual and, feminist horror. Intellectual feminist horror. And, you know, even if you're not into the intellectual side of it, it's still one of the most bizarre stories you'll ever read. Yeah, it's like uh, X-Men, part X-Men, part Friday the 13th, part... It's it's like a distillation... Part house. Of, <laughs> right? It's, it's a distillation of pretty much every uh, horror trope that you've seen. And it's all spun into an interesting... And dare I say, breakneck pace story. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're just like, I remember, you know, both reading um, the first half of American Monsters and uh, Crime Rave just being at the end because it's just like, it's, it's like riding a roller coaster. Yep. You even get a monologue. That's right. You get villain monologues too. So every villain gets a monologue. So with that, 
once again, go out and buy this book. I believe it's on available on Smashwords. Um, is it on Amazon, Steve? I don't know. I got it from Smashwords. Yes. So you can definitely get it from Smashwords. That is American Monsters by Cezine Kohler. There'll be a link, right? Uh, I will put a links in the description of the podcast, yes. Um, it looks like you can get it on Amazon. Excellent. So you can get it for your Kindle. Yep, you can get it for your Kindle, three bucks. You can get the paperback for 14 There you go. Excellent entertainment at a decent price. Go out and pick it up as soon as you can. Yeah. And with that, we'll say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie.